Hello, New Jersey. Welcome to another edition of On the Record. A surprising State of the State speech, an effort to bring back hard cider to New Jersey, the miracle on the Hudson revisited 10 years later, and a nearly forgotten school shooting from 1963. Those are all topics covered in this week's The Best of On the Record. Let's start with an excerpt from Governor Phil Murphy's first State of the State address. Murphy surprised many by leading off with and devoting considerable time to this blistering critique of the state's tax incentive program. Between 2010 and 2017, $8 billion in corporate tax breaks were given away. More than $11 billion have been awarded over the past 13 years to lure companies to come to or stay in New Jersey. By the close of 2017, we were handing out tax breaks at a cost of more than $160,000 per job. The comptroller could not prove that New Jersey got back benefits anywhere near what it handed out. Based on a sample, it could not even prove that 20% of the jobs promised to be created or retained actually ever were. Meaning, money flowed from taxpayers' pockets into a black hole. Tax incentive programs should be about the best of what we can do in government. Creating good jobs by investing taxpayer dollars with integrity and subject to real oversight. That's the test. And it's the test our system spectacularly failed. For the past year, this administration has fought to create a New Jersey that works for everyone. This is just the latest glaring example of what we're up against. A system that has been rigged to work for a favored few. Let me be perfectly clear on two things. First, I do not oppose tax incentives. Carefully crafted, properly enforced, and transparent incentives have a place in a successful economic program. I am a pro-growth progressive, and proudly so. I am working every day to support companies and startups that want to grow, create jobs, and thrive in New Jersey, and that don't need to have a friend on the inside. Incentives do help, but we need to do this in the right way, the smart way, and the honest way. Next, we'll hear from my record colleague, Ricardo Colasar, who talked about the 10th anniversary of the emergency landing of a U.S. Air flight on the Hudson River. In this excerpt, Ricardo talks about some of the factors that contributed to what has become known as the miracle on the Hudson. Yeah, everything worked out. It was a miracle in a number of ways, as always explained to me by one of the other ferry captains that day, because they, I guess you can say, I don't know if the perfect word, but maybe the perfect storm, because you had a situation where landing that plane, they landed in a river that the day before had ice chunks because it was frigid. It's January. So that was one thing where the ice wasn't there. And if it was, it was not pre- prevalent enough to create a problem. Also, it's told that the because it happened, say, about a half hour or so before the actual rush hour where on the river where you had, where you have many ferries and different types of boats, somehow the river itself at that moment was devoid of a lot of traffic. So the plane was able to have a smooth landing, which it helps that, you know, I think people probably 
had some ideas, so try not to sail in there. But at the same time, however, there's no guarantees you'll have ideal conditions of that sort. True, true. And they had some luck in that people who saw it jumped out of their normal roles and became something else. I'm thinking of the ferry boat cruise. Yes, exactly. Uh, you've talked to a couple of them. Tell me about uh, what, what, what it was like to talk to them. I just, to me, it, it was fascinating how they didn't see themselves as heroes. They were more like reacting to the situation, that it was their duty. I mean, I think almost all of them, uh, Vincent Lombardi, who was the first, who was the um, captain of the first boat that got there, which is Thomas Jefferson, told me that it was something that he just reacted. It was right in front of him. He, he took his oath as a mariner to do that. He had done some, re you know, he's done some rescues. I mean, there were, from what I gather, they had already at that point had already maybe an occasional plane or somebody or boat or something of that nature that they've had experience rescuing in different ways. So it was probably for them not any different, although the situation at hand, when you, you don't... Lombardi pointed out to me, you don't see a, you know, commercial aircraft of that size landing in the Hudson River. My record colleague Catherine Carrera talked about how a Rutgers University researcher is trying to revive the kinds of apples that were once used to make hard cider in the state. In this excerpt, Catherine talks about what it would take for New Jersey to get back into the hard cider business. Is it a little late for New Jersey to be getting into the hard cider game? I mean, you've got Angry Orchard, which has kind of established itself as a national brand. Mm -hmm. um, there are several, I only know this because my wife loves drinking cider. There are several other brands, including one from Ireland, if I remember rightly. Is it kind of late for New Jersey to be getting into the game? Um, well, according to Megan Mulebauer, she doesn't think so. And New Jersey used to be one of the top uh, hard cider producing states in the country, and she thinks that we can get back to that. And it turns out that the, the flavors that Angry Orchard, for example, has out there, they're more sweet, and the traditional hard cider is actually more tart. So it's a different kind of hard cider that these companies are looking to produce. So tart is what George Washington was looking for in a cider. Yes, yeah, tart. Um, the apples don't look like what we're used to seeing in grocery stores. Um, they're smaller. And the trees that these apples come from don't yield as many apples that a Fuji apple might yield, uh, apple tree might yield. In fact, if the, if the marketing folks are to be believed, I guess George Washington was fond of a cider called Ironbound? He was, yes. So he was actually fond of a cider that came from the apple called Harrison, uh, which grew in the area of Newark, and that's how it got its name. And after the Prohibition era, it was said that the apple itself became extinct, and this is one of the most sought-after sought apples because it, I think George Washington called it the champagne of ciders. And finally, my record colleague Chris Mogg talked about a nearly forgotten 1963 school shooting in Patterson that was treated much differently than a school shooting would be handled today. In this excerpt, Chris talks about his conversation with one of the survivors of that shooting. You also talked to one of the students who was hit that day. Tell us about him. So that is uh, Joe Chipola. He was only 12. And 
He's really funny. Uh, he's now 68. He lives in Winter Park, Florida, and he tells the story of his childhood that he was a troublemaker. He was a he was a kid looking for action, and he was playing five card uh, stud poker on an overturned. <laughs> yeah, that's it's crazy. Part, that's the part that cracked me up. Yeah, he's 12 years old. And he's playing poker. Playing poker for no money. I asked, uh, but still. Um, and what was even then a rough section of town mm-hmm. where he didn't live. He lived about 10 blocks away. And when the shots rang out, uh, his, um, they thought it was fireworks. So uh, he hid in a place that turned out not to be a good place to hide, underneath the stairs, behind a trash can, but he was still exposed to the, the shooting. What was interesting in this, I had to cut this from the story for space, he was bleeding from his knuckles, the, the bullet Graze his knuckles. He wrapped it up in a white bandana, went off to play at the Patterson Falls with his friends, came home late, later than his mother wanted. So he said, Mom, I'm sorry I'm late. I was shot at at this school. And his mother didn't see his hand and said, You're lying. That's just an excuse because you're late. Go to the store and get some bread and milk. So he went to the store to get some bread and milk. And when he came back, his mother was being interviewed by detectives. Wow. And so she felt bad about wow. what she said to him. The other thing that she that he said um, is that today, 54 years later, mm-hmm. um, he still has a little bit of regret. He feels that, at least as a child, he felt that he brought this on. Because when Ralph Best came outside and said, you kids be quiet, the kids responded in a very, with very strong language saying, go away. <laughs> and um, Mr. Best didn't take that particularly well. So when the police detectives were at his home, Joe uh, thought that he was in trouble. He really thought it was his fault. And uh, I think it's calmed a little bit, but he still feels a little bit of regret for how he spoke. Well, folks, that's our program for today. You can hear all these episodes in full at On the Record. And you can find On the Record at Apple Podcast and Stitcher. You can listen and subscribe to the programs for free. Enjoy the weekend and watch out for the snow.